Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to worship with you. I'm glad that you've uh, joined us for worship, even if it's only because you knew we had air conditioning. Uh, It does feel good in here, but we hope that um, whatever reason brought you here this morning, that you will uh, encounter Jesus, that you'll encounter His grace, and uh, maybe you'll make a new friend, maybe you'll stick around. We'd love to get to know you. And um, this is a great time to be introduced in town because we're going through a series on um, our kind of core values, uh, the ABCs of in town, what it means to be a church in the city, what are our foundational principles, why do we exist. And this morning we're looking at this idea of embodiment that, as John Calvin said, that the gospel is not a matter of talk, but it's a matter of life, and that the spirituality that we want everyone to experience here is outward-facing, embodied spirituality that matters in our everyday lives, not just in how we think or what we believe. So here is our gospel reading. This is Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was reading an article this week in the Journal of um, Current Biology, uh, which is how I spend my leisure time. Uh, No, the reason I read this article is because the title caught my eye, and it was uh, entitled, Religious Kids Are Jerks. Uh, I have four kids, uh, somewhat religious, uh, if only by proxy, um, by relationship to me, uh, that I want to know, are they jerks, (laughs) and and what makes them so? Um, Well, they tested this article or this journal, uh, tested the behavior of Christian Muslim and atheist children and found that on average religious children are meaner and less generous. Now, this goes against conventional wisdom because uh, religious people have holy books to guide them. They have a reason to be quote-unquote good and generous because God is watching and God is leading and commanding. Uh, And what reason do atheists have to be good, to be generous, to be altruistic? But even though that's common sense, as we know, common sense can be dead wrong. And they gave participants a test that involved possessing a certain number of stickers, and then they asked them uh, to share their stickers with the other kids that had fewer cards, and they tested how willing each of the kids uh, with different religious backgrounds were to share. And the findings showed that religious kids aren't more altruistic than non-religious kids, and it suggests that being non-religious may actually increase moral behavior. Now, how could this be true? Why would this be so? Well, they have a theory, and the authors of the study uh, gave a sort of interesting explanation uh, relating to a phenomenon called moral licensing. And it means that if someone has a firm reason to have a positive self-image, to have the status of 
being a good person, they may be less worried about the consequences of their actual behavior. For instance, if a man thinks that he uh, is above workplace sexism, he may, because of that, go on to actually hire a man over an equally qualified woman because in his mind, he's not sexist. So this decision to choose a male over a male couldn't possibly be immoral. So similarly, someone that sees him or herself as being devout in a particular religion might be less concerned about their actual behavior. And it becomes even a little bit less counterintuitive there because we all experience that. If you're a Christian, you've probably, it's probably occurred to you at some time, wow, if I'm forgiven, if there really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, does it really matter what I do? Does it really matter my behavior? And I've encountered that in hearing uh, that in counseling situations. So the authors of this study say it is not all that surprising that children who identified as religious did not feel compelled to share stickers since they believed themselves to be a good person independent of their behavior. And on the other hand, an atheist child might be more concerned about the morality of their acts since it is their behavior that tells them that they're a good person, not they're belonging to a particular religious group. Now, this had a lot of intersection with my thinking as I was reading through this passage, because though the Pharisees and the teachers aren't physically present in this passage, they're here in spirit, and Jesus is addressing them, and He's addressing spirituality that is meant to surpass the spirituality, the holiness, the goodness of the Pharisees and the teachers. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers were the ones with all the religious stickers, and they didn't want to share them. Though they were the most holy, the most moral people around, they were the most immoral in all the ways that really mattered. And Jesus says that their meticulous law-keeping Their outward morality did not put them on God's side and in His favor. In fact, it ostracized them from Him. And Jesus challenges them over and over, and they do what each of us do when we have our worldview challenged, when our theological, political apple cart is turned over. What do we do? We try to create suspicion towards the instigator. Their friends are dangerous. They read questionable things. They have dangerous theological assumptions. They undermine God's Word. And that's exactly what they said about Jesus. He sets aside the law of God. This is a very serious accusation. They're saying that this religious teacher, this rabbi, is by his teaching undermining the law, undermining the entire Old Testament, which is what the law and prophets mean. Now, incidentally, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher in Britain back in the last century, was quoted as saying, whenever you preach the gospel, you're going to get accused of antinomianism from time to time. Antinomianism, antinomos, that is against law. If you preach the gospel of grace, it's going to sound like from time to time you're giving people a license to sin, that they don't have to follow the law to gain or to keep God's approval. So what's to keep people from bad behavior? It sounds like you're setting aside the law when you appropriately preach the fullness of the gospel of grace. There was something about Jesus that made it seem that He was setting aside the law and teaching His followers to do the same. 
Now, there's a couple of very obvious things that stand out. One is his relationship with women. He elevates women constantly wherever he goes. He allows women to be in the inner circle, for them to sit as pupils, as students. This was completely unheard of. And there were Jewish proverbs sort of tongue-in-cheek that ended with, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. So he goes against cultural convention there. And he spends way too much time with unclean people, with sinners. He shares table fellowship. He has friends with people who don't follow the law. And he doesn't seem to care because he spends time in their homes sharing bread with them, which is a sign of social solidarity. In contrast to the very exquisite food laws of the Old Testament, he says, no, in fact, all foods are clean. You're defiled from the inside, not from the outside. You can eat and drink what you want. He healed on the Sabbath, which was very verboten. He limited men's freedom to divorce their wives. So in some very critical ways, in very obvious places, it does seem like he's setting aside critical parts, not only of the law, but of the culture that that law was inhabited in. And so they say, he's not one of us. He's dangerous. He breaks the law, and he encourages others to do the same. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not it at all. I've come to, in fact, fulfill the law and the prophets, and not the least stroke of a pen will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill that is to fulfill everything that the Old Testament points to. So, in fact, he affirms the authority of Scripture, not just in broad concepts, but in its actual words. As it's written down, he fulfills it. He obeys it. He does everything that is described. Now, for many of us, and especially if you're stepping into this place of worship from outside, that this is not a common experience for you, your conception of the Bible may be that it's a sort of haphazard, random collection of stories that don't seem to fit together. Well, Jesus is saying that all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, His Bible, is in fact leading in one direction. They're not random, they're not haphazard, but they're pointing to Him. What a bold claim. And here's how the story goes. The primary story of the Bible is very, very simple. It's the story of a father king who redeems his children. And it begins like so many good stories do, once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a garden of delight where this couple lived together in perfect unity and perfect mutuality and love with one another and towards God. That the father and his children lived in this lush garden full of delight with unfettered access to the father who is also the king of a powerful kingdom of the whole world. But a betrayer comes in, an enemy of the fathers, and convinces the children that far from loving them, far from being magnanimous with his love, he's actually being withholding. And he convinces them that they don't have true freedom, that their father is, in fact, very controlling because here's this one delight that he has withheld from them. And this is where true delight lies. And so they challenge their father's authority, they challenge the king's authority. They want life on their own terms. They want to do life apart from God and apart from His law. 
And the king, like any wise father, doesn't force intimacy. He doesn't coerce the relationship. He gives them what they want. He allows them to go through with their wishes. He allows them the estrangement that actually comes from them walking away from him, from the very one who longs for their good, who guided them day and night. But there's good news. The gospel is that that's not the end of the story, that the story continues, that He gives them the option of choosing autonomy, but at the same time, He sings songs of love over them. He dances and sings with great joy over them, inviting them back home. He tells them over and over that that they can't do life on their own in this dangerous and dark and confusing world. And so as His family grows, He sends them leaders to draw them home and to guide them of how to do life in this topsy-turvy world. And He gives them a law that embodies His love to guide them back to Him. And it's meant to be a means of blessing and delight. The law is how to live as God's people, how to stay in relationship with, with Him and to live under His spiritual care. But over time, over the centuries, this law begins to be abused many times over and over. It's misunderstood, and instead of being a guide into the Father's loving embrace, it becomes a means of expressing their own self-righteousness. It becomes then a means of separation, of dividing the us and the them. The law, for those who were pretty good at obeying it, was like the stickers that the religious kids had in the study that we talked about. They'd earned them. They were the good people. There was only a limited supply, and so they don't want to share. And so God does something final. He sends a Redeemer, His only Son, who doesn't have limited stickers, who has unlimited, who has unlimited grace. And He comes not with a new law, a new set of rules, but He fulfills the old. What the law was meant to be, Jesus says, I am. He embodies the law physically, spiritually. And He says that He comes to rescue us from the burden that we've made the law out to be. The problem you see in Jesus' mind is not the law itself, it's our use of it. It's how we take the commands of God and make them means to promote ourselves, make them means by which we think we can wrestle God's love and His approval out of His hands. The problem is not in the law, but our use of it. And He says, I am what the law pointed to, what the prophets called for. I am their fulfillment. Now, this is truly revolutionary because at On one hand, it's deeply in tune with the ancient stories and the promises and the prophecies of the Bible, and yet at the same time, he's saying that these stories and promises have been finally brought to fulfillment in him, the one who embodies the law, who follows the law, who teaches the law. When he comes, amazingly, it's the law breakers who flock to him while the law keepers reject him. He was taking away all of their stickers and giving them to the most immoral people that you could find. 
You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and perhaps this is true of us, conceived of spirituality in binary ways, in a contrast between here are those who obey and here are those who don't. And it's very clear, it's very easy to see who's in what camp because it's binary. There's God's way and there's man's way, but Jesus is not contrasting those who follow the law and those who don't. Jesus is contrasting the way that the Pharisees and the teachers follow the law and the way that Christians are supposed to follow, that God's true children follow the law. And in that way, He says, you, my people, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, exceed the way that they follow the law. Now, that's a very challenging verse, and there's lots of debate about this one phrase, and it's very critical to understand because Jesus tells us that unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, the really, really serious Bible teachers, that you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So, yeah, it's pretty serious. So, let's see if we can figure out what He means by this. Because Friends, what I don't think that he's doing is putting the kingdom out of reach of normal people. He's not saying that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were this serious, and you have to be extra, extra serious. I don't think he's putting entrance into the kingdom out of the reach of normal people. But he's giving us a critical insight to spirituality and what it means to be truly in relationship with him. Now, Protestants generally have read this passage, and most have reasoned well that he's reasoned that well he's pointing us to a righteousness that is above or beyond the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Well, what kind of righteousness is that? That can only come from Jesus Christ Himself. And so the, the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the teachers is the righteousness of Christ. And what Protestants have been trying to do, and we're a Protestant church, is to Uh, read this verse and to protect the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, that no one can work their way to heaven. No one has enough righteousness to gain entrance to the kingdom of heaven on their own, and it's 100% true. It's theologically accurate. But this has been the common interpretation because generally we privilege Paul over the rest of Scripture. We read Matthew through the lens of Paul. And it is true that all of Scripture is self-interpreting, that we need to interpret Scripture by Scripture. But why don't we have, first of all, patience with Matthew and ask, what is he trying to tell us before we resort to reading him through Paul? You see, Matthew says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the teachers, not unless Jesus' righteousness that is then given to you, but unless yours. Maybe we should be patient with Matthew and not be too quick to baptize him with Paul. Because what Matthew is arguing is that the purpose of Scripture, the story of the Bible, is leading us to personal embodied practice and response to the revelation of Jesus Christ, not simply right belief. So, what is this higher righteousness? What is this righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees? It's very important. He's not critiquing the seriousness of the Pharisees and the teachers, not the seriousness, 
but their externalism. Not their earnestness, but the way that their following parts of the law allowed them to neglect the more weighty matters of the law. The law is true intent. Matthew tells us, quoting Jesus in chapter 23, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin. That is, they spent so much time figuring out how to allocate the perfect amount of sacrifice that they neglected the weightier things of the law. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. The weightier matters of the law. The teachers and the Pharisees were highly moral. They followed the law in externalistic ways. They were very serious, but they missed the underlying, the deeper imprint, the deeper intent of the law. In chapters 5 and 8, Matthew tells us that the true intent is mercy and care towards the underprivileged, the sick and the poor and the ostracized, the very people that the teachers of the law did not care about. In chapters 9 and 12, it's privileging mercy over ritual sacrifice. In chapter 5 and 22, it's the summons to love God and to love neighbor in a radical way. In chapter 23, it's the call to spiritual humility. In chapter 10, it's the call to suffering. And in chapter 18, it's to become like little children that is wholly dependent upon the provision of God's grace. All of these things are the deeper, the weightier matters of the law. These are the things that exceed the Pharisees and and teachers of the law's righteousness because these were the things that they ignored, not their seriousness, but their externalism and their dividing between putting the less important matters of the law above the more. All of these things that we just talked about are the better righteousness. In Matthew, you see Maybe we see clearer than other places that true faith is a lived faith. It's an embodied faith. The Pharisees made this tragic mistake of making the Bible an end unto itself. They used it as a collection of proof texts to justify themselves and to condemn other people. They substituted, you see, the accumulation of Bible knowledge for actually doing the will of God actually following Him. They weaponized the Bible, as it were, cruelly using it on their enemies. In her uh, novel, Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte describes an insufferable judgmental Christian. He was and is yet most likely the wearisomest, self-righteous Pharisee that ever ransacked a Bible to rake the promises to himself and fling the curses on his neighbors. That sounds like the Pharisees, but unfortunately, doesn't it often sound like us? How quickly we are to marshal our arguments so that we can be in right standing, in right thinking, and how easy it is to look down our nose at someone in the pew next to us, to the church down the street, to the politician that is running for president, to whoever. 
what we need to see, what Jesus, I think, is driving at is that the law is directing us towards radical dependence upon God, radical love towards neighbor. If we don't see this, if we don't see the Bible as directing us finally to the true Word of God, that God who is Jesus, that He is the fulfillment, then we will, like the Pharisees and the teachers, play tricks with the Bible. Or like an author I like to read says, we will make it do our bidding. We will make it roll over and play fetch. With a concordance and a bit of cleverness, we can proof text our own righteousness. The Bible says, fill in the blank with what you want to believe, socially, scientifically, politically, theologically. The Bible clearly says this, and lo and behold, it happens to say what we think in those areas. It's so easy to do. The ones keeping the law when Jesus came on the scene were the ones that were setting aside the law's true intent. Jesus wants your, my righteousness to surpass the scribes by seeing the law's true target is Him, that He is the one that keeps the law for others. When He says He fulfills the law, that's what He means, that He keeps it for you and I. He upholds it for you and I. He's the one who gives His life for His enemies, the one who rescues and redeems you and empowers you to love God and to love neighbor. And our prayer is that in His power, that He would empower us to live as an embodiment of the gospel, to be a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray that we would let this text do its business with us, that we believe that these are Your words and that they are given to us, that You are not calling us to try and drum up our own righteousness, but You stand there willing and able to grant it, that You teach us so that we would not neglect the weightier matters of the law with externalism, with moralism, all the while patting ourselves on the back. Father, let us be repentant people. Let us be humble people. Let us be people who stand underneath Your Scripture, underneath Your Word. Let it be an authority in our lives, and let it change us that we would embody it, not simply believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.